I am so thankful to have heard the messages thus far in the conference and the singing that we've been able to do together thus far in the conference. It not only convicts and challenges us, but it has uplifted my soul. I think these are the kinds of messages that pastors and church leaders and those who labor in ministry, who are in the battle of ministry, they need to hear. And most immediately, they minister, I think, particularly to those of us who have both the honor and the challenge to come and speak to you. And on one hand, it is a great honor to be here, a great privilege and joy. On the other hand, only an insane person would say that it's not a challenge. I had some former students come up to me and they said, oh, Abner, we're praying for you. Man, we'd be so scared, we faint walking up those steps. I said, thanks for the encouragement. So it is a challenge, but every message preached thus far has been something that fortifies the soul to be courageous. And so thank you to all those who have preached thus far, and we look forward to subsequent messages. Thank particularly to Dr. MacArthur, who not only has granted me this opportunity, but who has a ministry of legacy, a legacy of ministry that has raised up men after men, generation after generation. We, we are indebted to you in that way. We are indebted to the Lord to you. And we are particularly thankful not only for that legacy, but for how you have been a paragon, Dr. MacArthur, of fearless clarity. So thank you. Well, with that, shall we begin our time with a word of prayer? O Lord, our God, you are our creator. You made heavens and earth with your word. You are sovereign over all, unstoppable, completely majestic. And your joy is in and over all creation to subject all things under the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to have all things exalt the Son of God, whom you have set forth in your divine love as the center of all history and theology. You, O God, have a plan. From the very beginning, you have set it forth in motion, and it will not be stopped. You are our creator. And so, O Lord, at this time, may we have the mental facilities to understand your word and to defend it well. May we have the heart to see your honor defended as our creator. And may we have the affection to see you exalted and your name vindicated in all things by the very word that you have revealed. So, O Lord, we do pray and we plead that your name would be honored in these ways and more at this time. And so we ask all these things for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. I have been tasked with the topic of clarity on creation, and therefore it is highly appropriate for me to give a caveat I often give, namely, that this message must be a lerman. You say, what's a lerman? Well, just like breakfast and lunch make brunch, friends and enemies make a frenemy, and tiger and lions make a liger. A lerman is a lecture sermon. It's a lecture sermon. It's a mix of both. 
And so no one can say to me, hey, why is there all this information and you're going through all these texts and you're speaking so fast and there's so many reasons and then you're going through everything rapidly and there's all this nerdy stuff. This is a sermon. It's a lecture sermon. And others of you might hear me saying, I want more nerdy stuff. I want more reasons and more analysis. And why are you moving to exhortation and encouragement and application? This is a sermon. It's a lecture sermon. Basically, a sermon exempts me from all criticism. <laughs> and I give it to you all freely to use. Nevertheless, I hope in light of this, we can have the right expectations for this message. And with this in mind, as I mentioned, I've been tasked with the topic of the clarity on creation. And as we begin thinking about this, it reminds me of a time when Dr. MacArthur was meeting with the parents of the students at the Master's University, and he asked these people if they knew what single doctrine had ensured and reinforced the theological fidelity of the faculty and the staff and thereby the entire institution. Was it justification? Was it sin? Or was it our doctrine of man? Was it our eschatology? Now, to be clear, all these doctrines, they are of the utmost and highest importance. So what is the gatekeeper for all of them? The singular doctrine responsible for the fidelity of this institution is creation. It is creation. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Creation is the foundation of the biblical storyline. After all, it's at the beginning. And so the way you approach creation will determine how you approach biblical passages. Creation is also the foundation for biblical doctrine because it's at the beginning. And so the way you ground certain doctrines will depend on your approach to creation. Creation also exposes our view of Scripture. Do we really sharply distinguish between human reason versus divine, authoritative, all-sufficient revelation? How high is our view of Scripture? Creation exposes that. Creation also exposes our hermeneutic. Do we really have a hermeneutic of surrender? When we study a text and we read the text per its languages, in its history, in its context, and we say, this is what God has said. I can say no other. And I will bow the knee to what the text says without qualification, reservation, or hesitation. Do we have a hermeneutic of surrender? Or do we have a hermeneutic of struggle? Where we struggle against the text to try to coerce it and manipulate it so that it says what we want it to say in the end. Creation as a doctrine doesn't just expose our understanding of passages, doctrine, scripture, or hermeneutic. It exposes our character. It is one thing to say you have a high view of scripture or a hermeneutic of surrender, but creation puts that to the test, especially in academia, because will you still cling to that no matter what, even if it costs you something? Where do your loyalties lie? All of this demonstrates that the doctrine of creation is a powerfully defining doctrine. And therefore, clarity on creation is not optional. As we just saw, this is the gatekeeper for the theological fidelity of an entire institution. In light of this, what I want to do is I want to not only strengthen our convictions about creation, but I want to turn the entire narrative surrounding the doctrine of creation on its head. We know the narrative and what people think and often say about the doctrine of creation. They talk like this. Well, the doctrine, it's not that clear. And, oh, it's not a big deal. It's, not, it's nothing. It's nothing big. And so, hey, it raises so many questions. Maybe we should just sweep it under the table because it's a little bit embarrassing. 
That is the common narrative you hear regarding issues regarding creation. I want to flip all that around. I want to show you the substance of this doctrine that you can figure it out, and it is clear. I want to show you what is at stake with this doctrine, that it does matter and its repercussions are massive. And even more, I want to show you the significance of this doctrine, that this doctrine doesn't raise the questions. This doctrine poses the answer to all apologetical questions because it shows us this central truth. This is our Father's world, and everything in it is for his glory. Therefore, he will make all things right in the end. This doctrine is not a liability. It is one of our greatest assets. So what we are going to talk about then is the substance of this doctrine, what is at stake with this doctrine, and the significance of this doctrine, so that in the end, the world may think you and I are crazy, but we will know and we will have clarity that we have not crazily handled the word of God. That is the goal, and that's what ultimately counts in the end. And because we have upheld the word of truth, we don't raise questions, we answer them in a satisfying way. So with that in mind, let's talk about clarity on the substance of this doctrine, clarity on the substance of the doctrine of creation. We need clarity whether the Bible even teaches what we might call young earth creation or creation by six days, six day creation. What does the text say? How does it speak in How do we even figure this out? The way we can approach it is similar to C.S. Lewis's logic on liar, lunatic, and lord. Either Jesus was not telling the truth, or he didn't know he was not telling the truth, or he was telling the truth. By disproving the first two points, we reinforce the third. In like manner, Genesis is either miscommunication, myth, or myth-busting. Miscommunication, myth, or myth-busting. Either some parts of Genesis can accommodate evolution because they're not historical, and therefore there's a miscommunication occurring. Or maybe all of Genesis 1 and 2 can accommodate evolution because it's not talking about history, it's myth. Or none of Genesis can accommodate evolution because it's talking about what actually happened, and it gives us the truth of history which busts all myth, past, present, and future. That is myth-busting. And by disproving the first two, we can establish the third. This really is the process of elimination. And we want to make the strongest case we can in the time that we have. We want to be absolutely sure. We want to be clear. So let's go through this point for point, starting with the first option of miscommunication. Miscommunication asserts that there might be some parts of Genesis 1 through 3 that are ambiguous and thereby could accommodate evolution or evolutionary thinking. This would include things like the gap theory or day-age. But when we look at the text clearly and closely, we will see it is not ambiguous. It is clear. For one, there's no gap. Gap theory alleges in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1 that the Hebrew grammar might allow for some gap. However, that is not the case. And we can see this for two reasons, or you can find it out two different ways. One way is you can look up all parallel grammatical constructions to Genesis 1, 1 through 4, and you're going to find 134 of them. And if you go one by one through all 134, here's what you're going to learn. There are no gaps. And if you say, I don't want to go through 134 of them, is there another way? Yes, there is. You can go to a standard Hebrew textbook, and it will tell you that those clauses are what we call circumstantial clauses that happen in and around the main verb. And with that, there are no gaps. 
No matter how you want to look at this, the text is crystal clear. There are no gaps. And it's equally clear on what a day means, contra day age. Genesis 1, verse 5, I'm sure you have it memorized. There was evening, there was morning. Some of your translations might have first day, but in Hebrew it has one day. You say, first, one, what's the difference? One is a counting number. It tells you what counts as a day. What counts as one day is evening and morning. The text defines what a day means. It is crystal clear. Now, God did not reveal this through Moses so that years and years later, we would have a weapon to use against the day-agers. No, Moses articulated this to show that God is such the creator. He is so sovereign, he not only creates time, he defines time. He is over every aspect of time, for he is the sovereign of all creation. But in any case, the Bible is clear. It's not ambiguous. It does not miscommunicate. In fact, Genesis 1 through 2 is so clear that it presents and asserts itself as how it should be holistically read. And we can see that in its usage of the vayiktol. And you say, a vaya what? A vayiktol. It is a Hebrew verb form commonly found in narrative. And because Genesis 1 through 2 has so many of these verbs, it presents itself as historical narrative. Just as you would read First and Second Samuel, our parts of Exodus, our later parts of Genesis, so you should read Genesis 1 and 2. It presents itself holistically as history. It is clear it does not miscommunicate. But people have one more way to argue that Genesis 1 through 2 is a miscommunication, or it miscommunicates in a certain way, and that is the presence of what we call phenomenological language. Since Genesis uses this kind of language, language of sunrise and sunset, people think, well, maybe that's not historical then. Maybe it's unscientific and allows for evolution. No, it's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. To be sure, phenomenological language is the language of observation, perspective, and appearance. But for that to take place, it requires you to see something that is happening in time and space and history. Yes, sunrise and sunset, it can be redescribed by the earth rotating around the sun, but that means something is happening in time and space and history. Phenomenological language doesn't make something ahistorical or allegory. It anchors something in history. And let me just help by giving you an illustration of this. And to be clear, this has really never happened in my household ever. But let's say I walk home one day and I find an expensive vase smashed to bits on the floor. So I call all my children in and I say, who threw this vase on the floor? And they say, oh, Abba, from our perspective, it wasn't thrown to the ground. It, it, it was just hurled and fell and, and broke into millions of pieces. We can't believe you're using such phenomenological language of appearance. Maybe because you use such language, nothing even happened. I would say, children, I don't care if I'm using phenomenological language of appearance. Something happened, and that means someone is accountable. And when I find that someone, you shall die. You shall surely die. (laughs) 
Phenomenological language doesn't suspend history. It anchors the event in the time and space discussed in context. And given the context of Genesis 1 being six-day creation, phenomenological language doesn't accommodate evolution at all. And with that, Genesis does not miscommunicate. Every factor people raise up to say that maybe it accommodates here or there, it actually shows the opposite. It shows us anchored into history. It shows us one unified story. With that, the first option of miscommunication, it's excluded. It's out. It's gone. Somebody says, fine. What about the second option? Maybe it's a myth. Maybe the Bible is clear and it's one unified story. But... Maybe it's all about something not historical. It's kind of like a parable which tells a fictional story to illustrate a spiritual truth. In ancient Near Eastern culture, it has this. It's called myth. And Genesis has some similarities. For example, the presence of water above and below firmament, or that God makes man from the dust, or that the gods get angry with man. You say, wow, that does sound a little bit like Genesis. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1 through 3, kind of the highlights of that. Is Genesis myth? How do we think about this? Well, initially, we need to ask ask the question, how similar are the similarities? How similar are the similarities? If you had and you heard an ancient Near Eastern myth, would your first instinctive response be, oh yeah, totally the same thing, no difference? That's the question we want to ask, and let's do that now. In the case of water above and below firmament, here's how the myth goes. There is this goddess, her name is Tiamat, and an ancient Near Eastern god slices her in half from head to toe, puts one half of her body up above the sky and the other half below, and that is supposed to be essentially, basically identical with no real differences to Genesis chapter 1. That doesn't sound like Genesis 1 at all. Yeah, that's partly my point. What you are hearing when people raise similarities is after they've been interpreted and filtered. But if you hear a myth raw and unedited, all you're going to hear is not the similarities. You're going to hear the differences. For this very reason, scholars say that Genesis demythologizes everything. It demythologizes everything. But if Genesis demythologizes everything, then it's not a myth. And that's the very logic that we can see in the other supposed similarities. Yeah, ancient Near Eastern myths talk about man being created from the dust, but here's how it happens. The gods fight each other. One gets cut, blood drops out, hits the ground, and people pop up. That's how it works in the ancient Eastern myths. That is completely different than the intimate creation in Genesis chapter 2. Yes, gods get angry with people in ancient Eastern myths, but here's how it happens. There's overpopulation. I'm not kidding. This is kind of evolutionary ideology in ancient Eastern myths. There's so many people, they start making a lot of noise, and the gods get mad about it. That is completely different than Genesis 3 when we're talking about sin and disobedience. The similarities aren't that similar at all. And on top of that, there are massive differences as well. Genesis does not use the poetic style that ancient Near Eastern myths use. Genesis does not engage in pantheistic elements like ancient Near Eastern myths. And Genesis does not use evolutionary language like ancient Near Eastern myths. Here's something that sometimes people don't catch. But the word evolve and evolution is actually found in ancient Near Eastern myths. For example, in Egyptian myths, we even have a word that means evolve, and we know it means that because it's used to describe how a chicken develops from an egg. That's how some of the ancient Near Easterns viewed origins. And that brings up the irony of all ironies. People think, oh yeah, Genesis 1 and 2, it's about creation, it's so primitive, it must be like those primitive ancient Near Eastern myths when in fact it is evolution that is most like the primitive ancient Near Eastern myths. 
with that. Genesis says over and over again, this is not a myth. This is not a myth. It's not a myth in style. It's not a myth in content because it doesn't use pantheism. It's not a myth in language because it doesn't use evolutionary language. Moses, with every single literary choice under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he shows over and over again, this is not a myth, which means this is not a myth. Which means the second option is excluded. So all you have left is the final option, myth busting, that Genesis tells you history. History that busts all myth, past, present, and future. And this logic of history and theology is the very logic of Scripture because Scripture articulates that history is the basis for theology. History actualizes theology, and the reality of history is the reality of theology. Think with me about the resurrection. Does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, well, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's okay because we got the theology of the resurrection, no biggie. No, take away the history, you take away the theology. And that is not just in 1 Corinthians 15. Peter says, the reason we know there will be a future eschatological judgment is because of what God did in the flood. But if you take away the history of that, then Peter's argument falls apart. Our Lord argues there's mercy in the law because of how David received the showbread. But if that didn't really happen, then Jesus' argument falls apart. Hebrews 11 recounts Old Testament history to talk about faith. But if all of that history is wrong, you remove the author of Hebrews' argument. Take away the history, you take away the theology. The logic of the resurrection is the scripture's logic of history and theology. History is the basis for theology. Therefore, Genesis 1 through 3, it's history that tells us the theology of creation. And this is exactly how, this is exactly how the biblical writers think about it. Who reads Genesis 1 through 3 this way? Well, Moses does. Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 5, he records that God says, I made the world in six days. Psalm 104 is structured around the days of creation, even though it's poetry, and recounts it in that manner. Daniel 7 is paralleled with Genesis chapter 1 in its progression. Why? Because Daniel is showing that the end will be just like the beginning. The first word of 1 Chronicles 1.1, recounting the genealogy of man, begins with the word Adam. Chronicler believed in a literal Adam. Amos 5.8, God says he created the stars. Isaiah 45, God declares that he made the light and the dark. Matthew 19, verse 4, talks about how God spoke to Adam and his wife in the garden. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Acts 17.26, Paul declares that God made from one man all the nations of the earth, reaffirms this in Romans chapter 5. Peter in 2 Peter 3 talks about creation. Hebrews in Hebrews 1 articulates how God made the world and sustains it by his word. So therefore, who reads Genesis this way? Well, you got Moses, the psalmist, Daniel, the author of Chronicles, Amos, Isaiah, Matthew, John, Luke, Paul, Peter, author of Hebrews, and Jesus. I think we're in good company. People may think we are crazy, but we have not crazily handled God's word. Because Genesis is not miscommunication, it's not myth, it's myth-busting. It is not that some parts of Genesis accommodate evolution or all parts of Genesis accommodate evolution. It is that no part of Genesis accommodates evolution because it tells you exactly what happened. It is history. We have not crazily handled God's word. We have a charge to rightly divide the word of truth, and we must keep it. And I hope to show you through the substance of this doctrine When we regard Genesis 1 through 3 as history, we have. We have. We have delivered that charge. Now, some of you here might say, well, that's nice, but who cares? 
Does it really matter? Is this a big deal? And that brings us to our second point. Not just the substance of this doctrine, but what is at stake with this doctrine? What is at stake with this doctrine? Like I said, some of you might be wondering here, does this matter? Does this make a difference? What is at stake? Brothers, all doctrine matters. All doctrine matters. And let me just prove that in this specific instance. You want to know what's at stake with creation? Christianity. Christianity. You say, oh, you're just being overdramatic. Oh, you're just exaggerating. No, we can prove it. And that's what I want to do here. What I want to do is walk you through the 10 categories of systematic theology, the very summary of Christian doctrine and dogma. And what I want to show is that when you change Genesis 1 through 3 to accommodate evolution and to make it say things by their own admission that these are the people who say this is what has to happen, that there's death before the fall, that God did not specially create man, or that there are multiple Adams and Eves. When you say that and you are consistent with that, you will have to redefine all 10 categories of systematic theology. Change creation, change everything. And let's see how this works. If creation isn't true, if evolution is what really happened, then immediately you will have to change your theology of the Godhead, of the triune Godhead. We are talking about theology proper, Christology, and pneumatology. Because the Bible defines the godness of God by virtue of the fact that he creates. It's in the very opening of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, the Father creates. Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit creates. And they create every place and everything that fills those places. They are exhaustively involved in creation. When the Bible wants to prove the deity and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it appeal to? Creation. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Colossians 1, everything, everything was created in him, that is Christ. Over and over, the Bible asserts that the godness of God for all three members of the triune Godhead is by virtue of the fact that they create. The logic is this, because they directly create everything, they are directly over everything, and nothing is apart from them. But if evolution is true, then that really didn't happen. And at that moment, if you're going to be consistent, and by the Bible's own logic, you will have to redefine what makes God, God. Because the Bible believes what makes God God is the way he creates. By the way, you won't just have to re redefine God's nature by virtue of his greatness. You will have to redefine his nature by virtue of his goodness. Because he makes a very good world, but if evolution is true, death happens before the fall. Which means death is part of a very good creation. That changes the goodness of God. If you change Genesis 1 through 3 to accommodate evolution... And hold to it consistently, you will have to redefine theology proper, Christology, and pneumatology. But the changes won't stop there. The changes won't stop there. They will go to your harmardiology. They will go to your doctrine of sin. If there is no Adam because evolution is true, then how did sin come into the world? You are going to have to wrestle with the existence of sin per the Bible's logic. But not just the existence of sin, but even the essence of sin. Because if death happened before the fall... We normally think of death as something bad and wrong and wicked because it's a result of sin. But death happened before the fall, so at least it's neutral. And since death actually facilitates evolution, death is good. And at that moment, you've called something evil good. You have totally changed the definition of sin. If you hold consistently to a change in Genesis 1 through 3 to accommodate evolution, 
you will have to redefine harmardiology, both in its existence and its, in, in its essence. And once you change the definition of sin, you're going to change the definition of salvation. Because after all, what are you being saved from? Death? But it's not that bad. On top of that, the very mechanisms of soteriology are dependent upon creation. Romans 5, in Adam all die, in Christ all live. We just learned that. That depends on creation. On top of that, you have phrases like Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. 2 Corinthians 4, the God who said, let there be light will shine light into your hearts. Next chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All of those texts depend upon God's ability and the fact that God did, in fact, create so that he can do it again in salvation. But if that really didn't happen, if that really isn't true because evolution is true, if he didn't do it the first time, what makes you think he's going to do it again? If creation doesn't work, salvation doesn't work. And so if you change Genesis 1 through 3 and hold to it consistently, you will have to redefine soteriology. But you won't just have to redefine soteriology, you will have to redefine anthropology. Anthropology. We believe that man is distinct from animals because God specially created us in God's image. But if evolution is true, that's not true. And that's gonna have to be refined and redefined. And even human sexuality will have to be redefined because the reason we believe that there is male and female is because God made us that way. But if that's not true, then we have no way to account for that, and that's up for grabs. In fact, the unity of the human race that we're all in Adam will have to be redefined, but that unity is so critical. It is crucial as a foundation for impartiality. It is crucial as a mechanism for salvation, as we just discussed, but if evolution is true, that's not true, and that will have to be redefined. If you change Genesis 1 through 3, you'll have to redefine anthropology, and once you redefine the doctrine of man, you will have to redefine the doctrine of the church. Because one of the uniquenesses of the church is Jews and Gentiles are together in one body. And the significance of that is found in Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, that God made us in him, that is in Christ, as one new man. Ephesians 2 is reminding us that because we are in Jesus Christ, the final Adam, we are a new humanity in him. And so the church has a noble calling. It displays the effectiveness of the gospel, that the gospel overcomes sin, even the most divisive sins that divide men. And furthermore, it highlights thereby that Jesus is the final Adam, Lord over all creation. This is glorious. This is majestic. This is noble. And it's pointless if evolution is true, because that's not the way it was. So why does it need to be that way? There's no point to it. If you change Genesis 1 through 3, you will have to change your ecclesiology. And you won't just have to change your ecclesiology, you'll have to change your eschatology. You will have to change your eschatology. God promises a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, why are we even talking about a new creation when there wasn't even an old one? What is the point of a paradise regained if the paradise that was lost had death in it? How is that any comfort whatsoever? If you change the beginning, you will change the end. If you change the end, you will change our eschatology and our hope, and our hope. Well, all these changes ensue because we have been changing the Bible 
We have been changing all these different parts of scripture and that originates from an original change, an original alteration of Genesis one through three because we allowed human reason to come in. At that point, we have changed our convictions about the inerrancy, sufficiency, authority, and exclusivity of scripture. In changing all these things, we have changed our bibliology. Well, so far, here's what we've seen. If you change creation, you're going to change theology proper, pneumatology, Christology, harmardiology, soteriology, anthropology, ecclesiology, eschatology, and bibliology. And if you're counting, that's nine out of ten. And you say, wait a minute, that means one survived. Excellent. What, what, what went unscathed? Angelology. And you might think to yourself, surely that would not be affected at all. Well, you keep thinking that. Until you read Job 38, 6 through 7, where, and this is key, God himself. God himself declares. The angels rejoiced when he created the world. The angels rejoiced when he created the world. If you change Genesis 1 through 3, you will have to redefine parts of your angelology as well. With that, when you change creation, when you redefine it, if you are consistent, you will have to redefine the 10 categories of systematic theology. You will have to redefine that which summarizes Christian doctrine and dogma, that which makes Christianity Christianity, theologically speaking. Therefore, what is at stake? What is at stake? Christianity is at stake. That isn't overdramatics. That's not exaggeration. That is a provable fact. We just proved it. And that's why this doctrine matters. And really, by this logic, all doctrine matters. To be clear, we need to be patient and humble. We need to be patient and humble as we ourselves grow into the whole knowledge of all the truth of Scripture. And we need to be patient and humble as we grow with others into all the knowledge of Scripture. Let me say that again because it's worth repeating. We need to be patient and humble with ourselves as we grow into all the Scriptures. And we need to be patient and humble with others as we are all growing into all the knowledge of the truth. At the same time, having said that, we have to grow into all the knowledge of the truth. You can't just shrug off a doctrine and say, well, that one doesn't matter, and I don't really care about that one, and does that really have any, make any difference whatsoever? I don't think so. Whatever. No, you cannot say that because all doctrine matters. All of it is interconnected. It stands and falls together, so we must know it all. That's why these doctrines are in this book to begin with, because they matter. So what is at stake? What is at stake? When you compromise the beginning, you put everything at stake. Brothers, you cannot afford to bend on this issue. The stakes are just too high. Be courageous. Be courageous. Dig into this truth. Love it. Learn it and defend it. And when we do this, this will drive us to our third and final point, our third and final point. We've talked about the substance of this doctrine. We've talked about the significance of this doctrine. And now we need to talk about this, the significance of this doctrine. Well, we don't want to approach this just merely negatively. We want to talk about this positively, not just what we lose. That's the previous point with what is at stake, but what we gain. And this is what I said 
at the beginning, and this is where it comes into play, that the doctrine of creation is not the doctrine that brings up all the questions about Christianity. Rather, it is the one that gives all the answers. We don't want to sweep it under the rug. We want to showcase it, and that's what I want to do with you now. What I want to do is walk you through a series of passages from Genesis to Revelation that all connect back with creation. And in these passages, we will see God act in light of creation as he's restoring everything and bringing everything right again. And that answers everyone's questions and every question possible about this world. But God is doing more than just acting in light of creation in these texts. He is acting because of creation, because there is a compelling logic, a driving motivation in the doctrine of creation, because the doctrine of creation says this, this is our Father's world, and everything in it is for his glory. Therefore, he will make all things right in the end. This is taught explicitly in the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter one, in the week of creation, the first half, God makes all the different locales, you could say, light and dark, sky and sea, and the land. And then he fills it with sun, moon, and stars, animals in the sky and sea, animals on land, and man. With that, God controls every place and everything that fills those places, everything, everywhere. This truly is our Father's world. Furthermore, God says that this creation is not just good, but very good. And he sets it apart for himself on the Sabbath day. He makes it holy unto himself. With that, we see this is our Father's world, and everything in it is for his glory. And we know there's a fall. That happens. But God has always had a plan in Genesis chapter 3, revealed in Genesis 3.15 specifically, that his son, the Messiah, will ultimately crush the serpent's head. Therefore, what we know and what we observe and what we see is this. This is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory. Therefore, he will make all things right in the end. And this creational agenda that God has, this creational agenda is reiterated, reinforced, and expounded by, of all things, the flood. The flood. Because yes, the flood does deal with God's global destruction and wrath, his judgment, absolutely, but it contains an element of restoration. It contains an element of restoration which goes back to creation. Notice in Genesis chapter 8, 1, it says this, that the waters ascended above the mountains, and so all you have is sky and sea. Sky and sea. And within that, it says in Genesis 8-1 that there was a wind blowing over the waters. Where have you heard language of a wind or in Hebrew spirit hovering or blowing above the waters? Genesis 1 verse 2. Genesis 8 connects back with Genesis 1 for this very reason. Genesis 8-14, it says this, then the dry land appeared. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 1 verse 9. And then in Genesis 8 verse 17, it says this, be fruitful and multiply. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 1 verse 28. Over and over again, what we see is the flood links back with creation. Why? Because yes, the flood is judgment. Yes, it is God's wrath. Absolutely. Amen and amen. But at the same time, God resets the earth. He resets the earth, not to immediate destruction like he did before the flood, but unto his plan of redemption, unto his plan of redemption, which is articulated in the Noahic covenant. It is explicitly articulated by its content, but even the word Noahic covenant, the title of it, the word Noah, it means rest. It means rest. And what kind of rest are we talking about? We are talking about an Edenic rest. How do we know that? Because the first usage of the Hebrew word Noah is in Genesis 2.15, Genesis 2.15, where God actually lays out an Edenic rest 
for man. And with that, God then positions creation unto making all things right, unto an Edenic rest. And with that, it is declared, this is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory. Therefore, he will make all things right in the end. And this is exactly God's agenda, and it launches it into the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, God proclaims this even to the nations in the 10 plagues. Clearly, the 10 plagues directly show God's control over creation, but even the structure of them themselves connects back with Genesis chapter 1. In the 10 plagues, you have three sets of three plagues dealing with the water, the land, and the sky, the very categories that you see in Genesis chapter 1. Creation and the plagues are tied together. Why? Because God is declaring to Egypt and the whole world, this is my world. I own everything in this world, and I will make all things right. It is for this very reason that God commissions the tabernacle. And he commissions the tabernacle and constructs it in a specific way that connects back with creation. The physical structure of the tabernacle has some resemblances to Eden. That's why there's a blue tent and trees or wood on the inside of it. But even the very layout of the organization of the instructions of how to build the tabernacle connect back with creation. The way that Moses, our God, lays out the instructions on how to build the tabernacle is as follows. God speaks to Moses seven times, seven times. And on the seventh time, it is about the Sabbath. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 1, you have a creation week of seven days, and on the seventh day, it is about the Sabbath. The entire design of the tabernacle, even its instructions, is meant to remind you of creation. Why? Because God is announcing to his people, yes, you are separated from God because of your sin, but there will be a day. There will be a day when worship the way it was supposed to be in Eden, worship the way it was supposed to be in original creation, will be restored. And this is what we learn. Yes, this is our Father's world. He will make everything right. But what is everything? Not just general, not just the generic planet or broad sweeping ideas, but rather every single detail. Even worship will be made right because this is our Father's world. Everything in it, everything in it is for his glory, and he will make all things right in the end. This is not only found in the tabernacle in Exodus, this is even seen in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments go back to creation. The first two commandments, they presume creation. The fourth commandment about the Sabbath applies creation. And the tenth commandment about covening actually takes the exact wording of Genesis 3, where the woman desires the fruit That is the exact same term, exact same phraseology that is used in the 10th commandment. The 10 commandments go back to creation. Why? Because God is showing his people that even though they live in a crooked and perverse world, he will enforce ultimately his moral standard, his moral standard based upon his attributes, his moral standard established at original creation. He will enforce that. And therefore, Israel is to announce that to themselves and to the nation that this too is part of God's creational agenda. Sometimes we wonder in this terribly depraved and wicked world, will God make it right? Will he not only have a holy standard, but will he implement it? And God announces from his agenda of creation, he will, he will. And this is comfort to the believer, and this is a warning of judgment for the unbeliever. But why will he do this? Because this is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory. Therefore, he will make things right in the end. God's creational agenda moves from the book of Exodus to the book of Leviticus, a book about God's holiness, 
a book about God's holiness. And in dealing with his holiness, he says to Israel, when his holiness is fulfilled and they finally become a holy people, Leviticus 26, 12 says, he will walk amongst them and they will be his people and he will be their God. Leviticus 26, verse 12. That language of God walking amongst his people, it's very unique language in the Hebrew. It goes back to when God walked amongst Adam and his wife in the garden. Why does God reveal this? Because he says, yes, you are an unholy people, but there will be a day. There will be a day when I will make you holy. And when I do, I will even restore my relationship with you the way it was always supposed to be, the way it was supposed to be in the garden. I will make that right. That is part of his creational agenda. Sometimes we think to ourselves and our people think we feel so distant from God. We're facing so many trials. Is God ever gonna do this? How is God gonna handle this? What do we say to them? We turn to them and say to them this, this is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory. He too will make this right. The creational agenda of God moves from the book of Leviticus to the historical books, moves from the Pentateuch to the historical books. And you have 1 Kings 4 within this, which recounts Solomon's kingdom, which is a trailer, which is a sample of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And within this, it recounts what Solomon and his household eats, what they ate, the list of food. Here's what's interesting. There's only one other place in the entire Bible where that list of food is mentioned. It is found in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, where God says, these are the clean foods you can eat when you come into the land. But this is how God says it. Notice, he says it this way, you may freely eat from, where have we heard that before? You may freely eat from any tree of the garden. We know that. This is actually going back to Genesis chapter two. This is actually going back to Genesis chapter two. It's tied with creation. And so in the days of Solomon, God is not just merely working out his promises to Israel. He is working an entire creational agenda about food and its bounty the way it was supposed to be in Eden. Sometimes, oftentimes, people ask an apologetic question and they say, what about starvation? What about famine? What about hunger in this world? It's so terrible. It's so bad and wicked. Does your God even care? Does your God even have a plan? And what do we know from this text? Our God does. Our God does have a plan. He does have an agenda. Why? Because this is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory. Therefore, he will make all things right in the end. God's creational agenda continues from the historical books into the prophetic books. And we have a book like Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, where it says that the lion will lay down with the lamb and the bear will eat grass. That's Edenic. That's Edenic. It goes back to creation and it shows us that God's creational agenda even extends to animals. You know, you have PETA and they got all kinds of questions and concerns about animals and they have all kinds of weird solutions that are just weird. They don't work, they're just weird. Why? Because there is only one who has a solution to that problem. There is only one who has a solution to that issue. He's the one who has a plan, and that is our God. Why? Because this is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory. Therefore, he will make all things right in the end. It's not just found in the prophets. It's found in the poets. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Created me a Clean heart. With the word created, it goes back to creation. 
inherently. Why does David pray this? Because he knows that to have the right kind of heart, to have the heart that God desires, to have the heart that God originally intended, it will require nothing short of the act of creation. That's what God has to do. And here's what David knows, he will, because that's part of God's creational agenda. And with that, here's what we learn. God is not going to just make physical things right in this world. (coughs) He's not just gonna set things right relative to all the external things. He will even make right the heart of his elect. That's how right his rightness will go. That is how extensive his rightness will be. It will not just be on the outside. It will go on the inside. Why? Because this is our Father's world. Everything in it, both material and material, is subject to his glory, and therefore he will make it right in the end. Well, This continues into one more passage of the Old Testament before we get into the New Testament, and that is Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel seven, Daniel has a vision and he sees the sky open and then he sees the sea and all these animals come out of the sea and there's one like a son of man who rules over all those creatures. When you have this progression of sky, sea, animals, and man, that is the very progression of Genesis chapter one. Daniel seven connects back with creation. Why? Because Daniel is showing us that the end will be just like the beginning. The end will be just like the beginning. And that is the very nature of a creational agenda. That is the very nature of God's creational activity. But within this, Daniel sees with absolute clarity. He sees with vivid clarity that there will be one like the son of man, the final man who rules over all. And this is then what we learn. This is our father's world. Everything in it is for his glory. And he will make all things right in the end. And he will do so by his son, and by his son alone, and for his son's glory. And this is where Old Testament moves to New Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself son of man over and over and over again to accentuate that he is the final Adam. He is that one. This is in part why he performs so many miracles to demonstrate his sovereignty over creation. John, the gospel announces this, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the ending of John announces this, Jesus is mistaken for A gardener. Who's the first gardener? Adam. Jesus is the final Adam. God indeed has a creational agenda. But what secures this agenda? What accomplishes this agenda? The gospels are explicitly clear. It is the death and resurrection of our Lord. It is the death and resurrection of our Lord. It is the fact that he died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day which is the first day of the week. Why first day of the week? Because it's the first day of a new week, a new week of creation, holding out the hope and promise of a new creation. Therefore, the gospels are explicitly clear. Yes, God has a creational agenda. Yes, it is broad, but the crux of all of that is the gospel. Therefore, you cannot have anything that I've been talking about, not one thing apart from the gospel. Thus, we must preach the gospel. To do otherwise is a fool's errand. It goes against God's very design. This is the most central issue, sin and salvation. It is the most central, and therefore the gospel must be preached. You could put it this way. The, out of everything in God's agenda of creation, which includes basically everything, because it's the agenda of creation, God makes the gospel most central. What does that show us? There is nothing more central than the gospel. 
There is nothing more critical than the gospel. So therefore, we will never apologize for preaching the gospel first and foremost because it is central and most important. It is the crux of all things and most effective. Why? Because this is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory and he will make all things right in the end and the linchpin of all of that is the gospel so it must be declared. That is what the creational agenda tells us. The Gospels talk about the creational agenda, and it moves then to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, where we have the birth of the church, and it goes back to creation. In Acts 2, we hear this language of a great rushing wind, and that language is unique in Greek, and it only goes back to a few places, which all go back to Genesis chapter 2, where God breathes in man the breath of life. Acts 2 is connected with Genesis 2. Why? Because in Adam, there was an old humanity. In the final Adam, there is a new humanity. The church is a new humanity, and God in Acts 2 creates the church just like he created the original man. And when you understand this, and you understand the connections with Genesis, then all of a sudden, you understand something else. Why is the church speaking in tongues? Because it goes back to another event in Genesis, the Tower of Babel. And at Babel, God cause people to speak in tongues in order to scatter them and disperse them because he was judging them. In Acts 2, he causes people to speak in tongues in order to unite them because he is drawing them to himself in the gospel. The church is a reverse babble. The church is a reverse babble. It is a new humanity. It is all part of God's creational agenda. In our society today, people lament the fact that there's so many divisions between us, divisions in our society, divisions in the world, and they come up with all kinds of political things, even the United Nations, to try to solve this. But what God shows is he is the only one who can solve this, and he has done so and demonstrated so in the church. Now, to be clear, the church's mission is not to accomplish this in the world. Our job is to preach the gospel. We are a first fruit of that which is to come. That is why we even begin on the Feast of Pentecost, which is the Feast of First Fruits. We are a sample of that which is to come. We point to the one who will accomplish that, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Nevertheless, God shows this, that he will too make this right. What no man can make right, he too will make this right. Why? Because this is our Father's world, and everything in it is for his glory, and therefore he will make things right in the end. And this pushes all redemptive history in the church age toward a specific end. This is precisely why Paul calls us a new creation. This is precisely why in Romans 8, all creation groans for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God, and the movement goes into the book of Revelation where God engages in that very activity by his judgment. But all of this comes to a climax and culmination at the end of Revelation 20, after a thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in near-edentic conditions, God releases Satan. Why? Why would he do that? Satan goes out to deceive the nations, even as Eve was deceived. Here's the question. Will the fall happen again? Will the fall, with all of its terrible ramifications, ever happen again? Put it positively, has God solved the problem of evil? Has he made everything right to the point where everything is accounted for, and therefore nothing ever will happen again like the fall? Has he done that? And here is what Revelation shows us. He has. 
He has. Why? Fire comes down from heaven, stops everything in its tracks, and the fall will never happen again. Why? Because this time we do not have an Adam on the throne. This time we have the last Adam, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sits on the throne, therefore the fall will never happen again. And with that, God has made every single thing right, accounted for everything and the entire problem of evil. And at this point in the future, at this point in the future, we will know with clarity, this is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory. Therefore, he has made all things right. All the texts we have covered, they go back in one shape or form to creation. And what we have seen is God's agenda to do exactly what he said in Ephesians chapter one, to sum up all things in his son to sum up all things in his son. And here is what we have seen within this. People have so many issues. They raise issues of the environment, relationship, worship, peace, justice, judgment, animals, our heart, food, and hunger, unity, and evil in this world. And these are issues that people have questions about, and they think they're massive issues, and they believe Christianity has no answers to these questions. But we do. We are the only ones who have answers to all of these issues. Why? What does this stem from? Our doctrine of creation, because this is our Father's world. Everything in it is for his glory, so he will make all things right in the end. Creation doesn't raise the questions, it answers them, because it shows the dominion and glory of our God in this world, in all things from beginning to end. That's why this doctrine matters. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's significant. And with that, here's what we should ultimately learn. We don't study a text, our passage, our doctrine until we just understand it, until we can just defend it. You study it until you love it, until you cherish it, until it's a treasure to us. You don't just go around saying, well, yeah, this is a hard idea, but we're just going to have to grin and bear it and tolerate it. No, you study it in depth until you understand why God revealed it in the first place and we're thankful for it. We study until we worship. After all, we have seen the substance of this doctrine. It is clear. You can understand it. And we have seen what is at stake with this doctrine, that you must study it. And even more, we have seen the significance of this doctrine, that when we do study it, this is the doctrine that declares the exclusivity of God's sovereignty and his majesty in all things from beginning to end, and that drives every question and answers all questions that man has. And in that way, this doctrine is not only clear and imperative, it is beautiful, it is profound, it is powerful, it is compelling. And we have seen then, that even hard doctrine is beautiful when we see it the way God wants us to see it as we study his word. So may it be that we do not stop studying until every truth of every verse, of every passage, of every doctrine, we don't just understand it, we don't just defend it, but we love it. We study it until it is a treasure to us because that is exactly what all the truths of scripture exactly Shall we pray? Oh God, our Father, you are our creator. And your word created this world, and your word is your word. Everything is immaculate and beautiful, inspired and inerrant and infallible. 
And we ask, oh God, that we would be those who handle your word with great care and ensure that your glory is is displayed in every verse for you have revealed it. We thank you that you are the creator and you make all things right. May we champion your great name. In your name we pray, amen.